This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time today's show. Politics about the boring bits. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Uh, coming up on today's episode, the last one from uh, the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. As Keir Starmer lays out his final pitch, he hopes, as leader of the opposition at a party conference, uh, we take a look back at pre-election pitches uh, in history. The ones that have worked, essentially Tony Blair, and the ones that haven't, everyone else. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Tuesday, let's have a chat with these two. The Columnists on Times Radio. And as everyone on Tuesday, we are joined by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Can I just correct you, Matt, in your earlier statement that I hated Lib Dems? Obviously, not only is hate an alien and emotion to me, but I, <coughs> I love Lib Dems so much that I don't want them to waste their time anymore on well, any independent true. party. You've only got, yeah, their, you've only got yeah. their best interests at heart. Exactly. So this is all This is all a reference to a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Miranda Green, who's here. Morning, Miranda. Good morning. Uh, former advisor to Paddy Ashdown. Yes. A long time indeed, ago. Indeed, a long time ago. Although I have to say, this conference season has been wonderful for those of us who are relics of the 1990s. There's been a lot of re- a- tearful and emotional reunions from that era, actually, because it has got that slight 97 vibe about it now, I would say. But it's a 97 vibe with a lot of the people from 97. Oh, I know, yeah. I've been very boring at the parties, <laughs> telling people <laughs> my memories. I don't believe that. The, yeah. I don't believe that. We were in the same restaurant last night, weren't we? We were. The, entire, it's all very the whole jolly. of Fleet Street seemed to be in the same restaurant. <laughs> Anyway, um, uh, Danny, why aren't you here? Uh, well, uh, because, <coughs> as you know, I've got a book out and I had a number of events that were oh, planned in advance. Good. I didn't realise Labour was coming after the Conservatives rather than before it. So, oh, yeah, that is And I committed myself, so I had to go to it. We'll let you off, we'll let you off. We've all got books out, Danny. <laughs> we have. Very good yours is too, by the way, to everyone there. Well, that's very kind. I know oh, you, I'm the I know one out, aren't I? Better get Thursday. on with it. Have you not got a book? No, God. I need, need to rectify that, don't I? Get on with my book. I know you won't be able to mention it on air, Matt. So I no, I don't. I don't. It'd be really <laughs> embarrassing if I said it was called Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors and came out on Thursday. 50 places exactly. that changed British politics. Definitely don't want to talk about that. 
Right, before we talk about party conference season, let's talk about the story. And quite often, you know, party <laughs> conferences can be a bit of a bubble. There's a big thing going on elsewhere. And it's a really big thing right now. Uh, President ben, uh, Pre- President, uh, Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, warned the response to attacks on Hamas has only just begun. And we've seen thousands of people attending vigils and protests in London over the conflict. Uh, Pro-Palestinian protesters rallied outside the boarded-up Israeli embassy in Kensington last night, chanting, Israel is a terrorist state and free Palestine while letting off flares and fireworks. Foreign Secretary James Clever was asked about this by Sky News this morning, about whether pro-Palestinian protesters in London should just stay at home. I would suggest that they do. There is no requirement for this. This is a a difficult and delicate situation and uh, increasing... Um, a fear and and these protests be under no illusion are causing a huge amount of distress for people in the Jewish community in the UK who have often been at the receiving end of prejudice and threats uh, of violence. There is no need for this at all, and I would encourage them just to uh, to just to pause. This is a, a a delicate and difficult situation, and this isn't helping. What do you think, Danny? Should supporters of Palestine stay at home now? Well, look, <clears throat> there are two things that these people that are protesting are the statements they're making by coming out, and they have to decide whether they want to make these <clears throat> statements. The first is that they approve, they think is justified, the killing of innocent civilians uh, and, um, you know, the mutilation of bodies, the raping of uh, women, the hostage-taking. Uh, that's what inevitably, by timing your protest at this moment, you're saying. You're saying you think that that is justified by the situation. And the second, they're making a statement that's always very difficult uh, to counter because they say uh, free Palestine. And I personally, of course, want to uh, want Palestinian aspirations for a state to be recognised and I want uh, every human being to be free. But if they mean by free Palestine that they're going to eradicate the state of Israel or reduce Israel's security to the point where such murders as the ones that have taken place in the last few days are going to take place uh, on a regular basis, which is the reason why Israel has the protection and security that it does and cannot uh, accord uh, to its neighbouring people the freedom that they ask for because at the moment that freedom would result in violence. If they want to make those two statements, they can come out and protest. Uh, It's not illegal in this country, fortunately, to do that. Uh, But I think James Cleverly is correct in advising them that neither of those things are statements they should want to make. I mean, actually, there is a question of the law and legality around supporting Hamas, which is a prescribed terror organisation, and you know exactly what you're chanting and where you're chanting it might might fall into that. What, what do you what do you think? It's, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because there's always the danger. I mean, we've all already seen really horrible examples of anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish businesses, Jewish restaurants, in in the UK. There's always the danger of a sort of you know contamination from something horrific happening in the Middle East but I think I, I think I think you know it's interesting what Danny says on, and I think the problem is is that you have to remind people that the mission of these organizations is to wipe Israel from the map it, you know it's not a case of normal relations between neighboring countries who then have sort of conflict over territory so you know, it is a kind of unique problem in the world. And yeah. so it's right to remind people that those protests are actually supporting a cause which is to eliminate the state of Israel. So, uh, you know, and I think that ma- that does make it different. That makes quite, it a different, quite right, different Miranda, qualitatively 
different protest. Absolutely. And 45% of Jews in the world now live in Israel. And one of the reasons that Israel was created was to try to have a safe haven in the world after centuries uh, in which there wasn't a safe haven in the world for Jews. And unquestionably, this has resulted in Israel having, uh, you know, uh, an extreme difficult relationship with its neighbours, which, which has involved itself in robust security measures. And, you know, some people have sort of suggested, are these security measures disproportionate? And what's happened over the last few days is that it's been proven that they were not disproportionate, that, that, that the aim was, in fact, to kill innocent civilians in large numbers in order to make a political point and you know people who want to come out and protest are making a statement that that they favor that and actually um, you know obviously there's always this balance do you want people to come out on the street and do and say something appalling uh, and uh, you know what's what should the law say about that actually I'm I think if they want to discredit themselves in that way we're all learning something and um, you know I, I don't think I should interrupt my uh, enemy when they're making an error isn't it also though so sad i mean watching the sort of some of the explainers on the tv news last night when you see those pictures of the oslo peace accords and the kind of moments of hope that there have been in recent history about finding a two-state solution getting the more reasonable nations in the region to recognize israel and you know yeah. establish diplomatic that we seem to be so far away from that again now so you awful. know and that and that's sort of separate from the utter horror of of watching what's actually unfolded there it was interesting. We had uh, um, Sadiq Khan was on the show yesterday, and he was saying that, you know, as night follows day, this will lead to an increase in anti-Semitic attacks in London. It just will because it always does. And he was, you know, depressed about that and working with the police and so on. But also, ultimately, you know, Mark Drake was on the show yesterday. He said that the two-state solution is even further away than it has been for a very long, perhaps ever. And yet, that is still o- that is still the only solution. I think. The the, Israel and Palestine have to exist for side those, by side. For those people who are listening to this, who who take the view, um, you know, they're very sympathetic to the Palestinian aspirations for a nation state, and they're very sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people. What I would urge is that you you interrogate what people mean when they say or they are pro-Palestinian or they are for free Palestine. If what they mean is they want a separate state living alongside Israel in the partition proposed by the United Nations in the middle 1940s uh, as a result of the experiences of both people, then I think it's no, there's no problem than, than to, uh, to say, yes, you, know, you, you, you support that aspiration. But if by that they're making the suggestion, which I think a lot of them are, that there ought to be no Israel, this is millions of Jewish people who would be open to the kind of thing that's happened over the last few days. And Jewish people are simply, I mean, two things, not only ought they not to, but, we, but are not going to allow that to happen again. This is what every time we meet on Holocaust Memorial Day, and we finish with that statement, uh, never again. This is what never again means, literally not allowing this situation to happen now. And uh, this is a challenge for everybody who has a sympathy, uh, which I completely understand, for Palestinian people, thinks themselves as being pro-Palestinian, please advise other people who are pro-Palestinian. It has to be alongside Israel, safe in a safe state of its own, alongside a safe Israeli state. And if it isn't, it amounts to, to an attempted genocide against Jewish people, which has happened before and we cannot allow it to happen again. The other thing we should reflect, Miranda, is that there are people who are very passionate on both sides. There are an awful lot of people, people listening to this, who will just be thinking, I just don't understand this. And just looking at it as a human 
nightmare with what's been, what's been playing out in, uh, in Israel through no fault of the I- individual people taken from their homes or a music festival, whatever it might be, in exactly the same way that then the individuals going about their business in, in Gaza. You know, there's a, there's a human story here. That, that, and I think lot, there will be lots of people listening who think... Well, that's why we call I it don't terrorism, understand right? I don't really, yeah. Exactly. I don't really understand it. <clears throat> I don't really want to get involved because I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or, you know, and, and I think yeah. that's a, it's a thing that, you know, because of the nature of the, the programmes that we do and newspaper columns, it's always the people who've thought about it a lot and have very strong positions. There are lots of people viewing this as a, as a dreadful human story. Well, it is, and the individual human yeah. stories are absolutely horrific. I mean, the news is very, very difficult to watch at the moment. Yeah. Um, but al- al- also, you know, that's why it's called terrorism, right? Because the impact of targeting civilians in an utterly ruthless way is so great and it's a gut punch yeah. to your enemy and your opponent and it gets attention and you know unfortunately sometimes terrorism works because yeah. it sort of pushes either the international community or domestic authorities or whatever towards some some change some of, position. of position yeah and of course the, the concern here is that the terrorist atrocities will push the sort of retaliation from israel which then escalates the whole thing um and it becomes it becomes unmanageable well, I mean, it's, I mean the, the news is grim, and it, the, the, you know, the big fear is it's quite obviously going to get worse, I think. I but, think. but it has been really noticeable here, hasn't it, yeah. at Labour conference? And, I mean, about 25 Labour people must have said to me yesterday, just imagine what this conference would have been like if Jeremy Corbyn was still in charge of our party. You know, yeah. there was that Corbyn leadership speech when the hall was full of Palestinian yeah. flags. You know, not, not Labour flags or the Red Rose. And, and here we are this week with a completely united Labour leadership yeah. and in fact even the conference as a whole t- you know almost no dissent from solidarity with small, Israel. There was a very and small the, protest outside yeah, yesterday. And, and I mean that is a huge yeah. change yeah, in what three four years. Yeah. And the crucial thing was this this was not by Jeremy Corbyn simply support for Palestinian people's self-determination. It was opposition to the existence of Israel. It was support as he has made perfectly clear for Hamas uh, and he, um, he he made clear that he regarded them not as a terrorist force, but as a legitimate voice of aspiration of the Palestinian people. And that aspiration was to drive, was to go, you know, when you ever hear somebody say to all the way to the sea, what that means is drive the Jews into the sea. And um, it, it's so important to people who, who want... And, and I completely understand this. You want to to understand and to empathise with the aspirations of Palestinian people who associate themselves with taking a Palestinian stance who uh, are often critical of Netanyahu's government. That is not the same thing as as Hamas want. That's not the same thing. Yeah. And what, it's not what they're fighting for. And so uh, if, if, if people don't need to understand it very much, all they need to understand is... We've got to find a solution in which the Jews and the Palestinians are able to share the land uh, in Palestine with Palestinian state and Israel, yeah. uh, so, and they can live safely alongside each other. It doesn't require much understanding. Right, here we are then. Miranda's here, Danny isn't. But at various points, we have been together and apart at the party conferences. What have you learned over the last three weeks about the state of the nation's political parties, Miranda? 
Okay, so what I've learned is, number one, I'm not as young as I was. And, and at the end of three weeks, I really want to go home now. But yeah. apart from that, I think it has been really fascinating. And I'm really glad I've slogged around all three, actually, because the mood that you pick up, I think, is crucial to working out what's going on. Number one, the question has to be, you know, is Labour actually ready? And they're doing a pretty good job of answering that question in a positive way. Rachel Reeves' sort of barnstorming speech yesterday felt like a real moment when she was taking on the kind of aura of someone who almost was already in, in charge. Whether Keir Starmer can quite match that today, we, we will see. And then the Conservative Party last week, you know, I, th- I thought some of the coverage really overplayed the kind of Tea Party tendency. You know, they're not in control of the Tory party yet. And you would have got that impression, I think, if you hadn't been there in yeah. Manchester. There was a lot of government stuff going on. But there was that feeling of how much have they got left in the tank, to use that Jacinda Ardern you know, phrase. Um, and since they're the friend of the motorist at the moment, I think it's fair <laughs> enough to, to go with that. And, you know, you felt that if, even if they're not completely out of kind of governing fuel, could they make it through another five years? You know, they're definitely in the red. Where's the new fuel coming in, from? In Either way, people or I policies. Think that's sort of the you know. Tea Party right wing tendency thing. The reason you might have got the impression they were in charge is because they were just more interesting. You know, yeah, they, they, got they were a lot making of a lot of noise. Uh, yeah. They got annoyed, you know, mm. because Liz Truss and Pretty Patel and Nigel Farage singing and all of that is colourful and entertaining rather than some pretty dire thin speeches laid out at the conference hall. It wasn't that they were driving the, the government agenda. They were just upstaging them, really, by being slightly more eye-catching. Well, Danny, what's been, what's been your reading of the covered season? It's obviously eye-catching if you can make statements that don't have to accord to a reality or what you're able to do, as Liz Truss <laughs> demonstrated. I mean, it's, it's obvious that the uh, Conservative Party has stepped away from rather than towards the right, because this year the speech was being given by Rishi Sunak and not by Liz Truss, who had to give her speech on the fringe. So I think Miranda was completely right. I did sometimes feel with the coverage, which was sort of odd for me, that a lot of journalists had come there and, and couldn't believe that the Conservative Party conference was full of Conservatives. Um, and, you know, saying Tory things where about controlling immigration and not increasing taxes and controlling public spending. Uh, and, um, you know, and, th- and therefore, because the, conserv- the narrative is the Tory party is going to lose the next election, which is a narrative I sure to share, uh, there, there was a, everything that, um, that somebody said from the platform um, was regarded as kind of slightly mad or useless or incompetent um, and then everything that said uh, in opposition to that sounds fantastic actually I think the gap between how fantastic they were is not anywhere near as great as the coverage however I did think what was interesting about the Conservative Body Conference is that it wasn't very full uh, and yeah. that is because partly because party conferences are full of people who are not actually party members generally on both sides and all of that action was at Labour because people expect Labour to get elected. Um, I think it's reasonable to say um, there didn't seem to be much sort of coherent narrative and energy behind the Tory message. I'm quite interested in Rishi Sunak going for this time for a change idea, whether he's going to be able to sustain that. I mean, in my column, I rather doubted it. I do think the They've centred on a very good way of attacking Keir Starmer, which is to, which is basically true, that he doesn't know what he stands for. If I were him, though, in his speech, I wouldn't try and address it. I would simply stick with the reassurance message. It's obviously working for him, so it'll be interesting. So I would kind of note the Tory attack, realise it probably is in on the right weakness of Keir Starmer, but not try to address it if I were him. The other thing I thought, sort of comparing the two, was the sort of enduring importance of the speech and getting a good speech writer and being able to perform and project character 
and the That's sense really of being that. ready yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, you know and having the having the the, the, the kind of cojones I suppose yeah. to take on the work of government and I did feel at the Tory conference it was interesting that Suella Braverman's speech which shocked so many people and I did think some of it was pretty shocking in terms of the immigration language was a very well crafted speech mm. unfortunately and she'd put the effort in yeah. so whatever she's planning for the future of Suella Braverman she's taking it seriously I didn't feel that the corresponding balancing wing of the Tory party, the moderates as it were, if their plan is to not let their party after a potential defeat zoom off crazily to the right, they need to get some people in place, they need to get some strategy, they need to get some speechwriters so they can also get up on stage and say well actually we have a set of yeah. British conservative values to rival Suella's vision and it's this and there was nobody really doing that and I do feel that's a problem for the Tory moderates and then you, you come here and you see a fantastic performance from Rachel Reeves. Labour and, takes this speechwriting thing very seriously, as I know you'll be yeah, picking yeah. over it later. It's important. You've got to project, project to the nation what it is you're actually offering. I don't think we should underplay the significance of Rachel Reeves' speech yesterday. Indeed. It, as a, you know, I've sat through a lot of Rachel Reeves' speeches over the years, you know, during the Ed Miliband time and all that, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't rush in. Quick, everyone, gather your belongings. Rachel <laughs> Reeves is about to speak. <laughs> because yesterday, you think she... Yeah, because yes, you think she's going to win, though, don't you? Isn't it? Well, I no, think no, there's also, also a personal aura that's having now sat around her. It, it was mm. just she was a better. It was better crafted. Basically, it had all the hallmarks of a Gordon Brown speech. I mean, I hate to say it, but it was quite prime ministerial. Yeah. So I actually think Keir Starmer's job today yeah. is that she little was, bit um, harder for him. I bumped into her last night and said, "I, I like the way you you rode the the waves of applause." She did the thing that Gordon Brown used to do: was it well, you deliver your line and people clap, and look, rather than waiting for the clapping to stop. You just shout over them and you just keep shouting and they keep clapping and you keep shouting and before you know it they're all up on their feet and they can't really remember why but I, do, the, I do think at these party conferences as you go towards winning you pull in better people to help and clearly you also realize you're on the verge of victory and it gives you energy to yeah. prepare yeah. it and i did think you know i did agree i do agree with you i thought it was well crafted and you know my view of these things is they take a lot of work over a long period of time to do a good speech and you've experienced that too Miranda I've worked on well, lots it's a hellish and process it's really <laughs> awful you know, and, yeah. and it really is awful and you don't emerge for days but you do spend for, forever on them but they, but, it, but if you go through every sentence and every line work on it it does make a big difference but I did, the other thing though is it makes a big difference if the hall is full the atmosphere is with you and Suella Bradman did, did have a well crafted speech but it was you know Alex Chalk before her also did he just didn't have the, the, the kind of Hall's energy with them because the Conservative Party membership, without any question, you know, it elected Liz Truss and that's still probably where it is and so therefore you're going to be able to get more energy back uh, from the Hall if you if you are in that area and the same's true uh, for, for Rachel Reeve. So it to some extent is about narratives as well as about the actual craft of the speech. We should talk about the, the parties who bookend this conference season. The Lib Dems... It feels like about two years ago now. Is it two weeks ago? We were no, it was two born? years ago, Matt. Yes, we're two, two years older, definitely, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I feel it. Uh, um, two weeks ago, and then we've got mm. the SNP this weekend. Mm. And their fate, you know, both seem in the balance. You know, the, the Lib Dems could, you know, go from whatever it is, you know, 15 MPs now. Maybe they'll get to 20, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll suddenly get 30 or 40, and that will surprise everyone. And then similarly, we've seen in the Glen by election last week, the SNP, if they are in retreat in Scotland, as the polls suggest, that suddenly makes the whole calculation of what happens at the general election 
you know, th what happens to those two parties is also really important, albeit we're not quite obsessing about them in as much right. detail. Well, so absolutely, in terms of where the numbers fall, right, yeah. Danny? It's, it's yeah, going to be crucial. But the, the other thing that the SNP is telling you is that you can't be in power forever. And at a certain point, time for a change com comes in. And we all ascribe that to different things that the SNP is doing to do with caravans and pub party finance and that the Tories are doing to, to do with parties and Liz Trust. Uh, but actually, in fact, it's just after a while, the pendulum effect gets you. And then we all create a narrative to explain what's really just over time, the accretion <laughs> of people being opposed to it. And, and you can see it because here, are, here is Labour winning against two completely different opponents with no correlation between them whatsoever, both experiencing the same problem. And the only thing that the two have in common is they've both been in power for a long time. And so it does rather suggest that some of, some of, our, nar some of our narrative um, is, is trying to explain a phenomenon that just happens it just over happens time, over just a, and over again. It's just a concept of time. I, I think that is absolutely true, but I do think there's a big difference between the kind of English picture and the Scottish picture because in Scotland there's a kind of natural floor below which the SNP vote probably won't go because of support for independence, whereas in England it feels really quite volatile. And I think several sophologists that I was chatting with in Bournemouth were saying the same thing to me, Matt, which I think I may have said to you before, so apologies over the two years I've occasionally replaced myself, which is, you know, it's so, it's so volatile that you could end, you know, all these outcomes are possible right through from hefty yeah. landslide, which massively ups the number of Lib Dems as a kind of corollary of that, you know, or a narrow win and the Lib Dems still stuck on sort yeah, of, you yeah. know, 20 or so. Uh, but but the electric can sort of, you know, turn like a, on a sixpence yeah. at the moment, as and we know from recent... And that's what makes so excited, it not being, totally. a, not being a foregone conclusion. Miranda Green from the Financial Times, and of course, Danny Finkelstein from the Times. You can read him every week with your Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, how do you make your last pitch to the public? You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Keir Starmer using his big speech at the Labour Party conference to lay out his, what he hopes, will be his final pitch to the public ahead of a general election. People are looking at us 
because they want our wounds to heal. And we are the healers. People are looking to us because these challenges require a modern state. And we are the modernizers. People are looking to us because they want to build a new Britain. And we are the builders. So how does it compare to others? It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So, Keir Starmer making what could be his last party conference speech before the next general election. With a, lot, a, lot, a long checklist he needed to work through. Prove to his party and the public at large that he's ready to be the next Prime Minister. But what can he learn from his predecessors' pre-election speeches? Uh, let's speak to Phil Collins, Times columnist, a former chief speechwriter for Tony Blair, a man, in fact, the only Labour man for a very long time who's successfully done a pre-election conference speech. Uh, good to see you, Phil. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a big moment, as you say. I mean, exactly what you just set out is what he needs to do, is to demonstrate he's going to be the Prime Minister. Uh, and we've got Times Radio's Aisha Azarika, who worked for Ed Miliband, who didn't. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry about that. Uh, right, let's, we're going to wind back a bit further. We're gonna, let's go back to 1991, uh, when uh, Neil Kinnock had already you know, fought and lost the general election in 87, but had another go. The polls suggested uh, that he might be on course to become uh, Prime Minister. And in his final uh, Labour uh, Party conference speech in 1991, ahead of the 92 election, he talked about the failures of UK public services compared to our European neighbours. People look at the state of our society and they look at our neighbours in the rest of the European community. They see the high standards of training, the quality of childcare, the investment in public transport, and they ask, why not here? Why not here in Britain? And the answer is, we can change. We can do it here with a Labour government. It's interesting, Phil. It's the opposition often get accused of very, very good on the, on the diagnosis that Britain is broken or things aren't working. But turning that into a solution to those problems is more difficult. Yeah, it is. And Kinnock is a study, really, in the limitations of these speeches because he was magnificent at them. You know, just in that short clip, the voice, the resonance, the rhythm, it's really good, technically, for a piece of writing. And he did, some, obviously, some famously magnificent Labour Party conference speeches, but they weren't enough to take him into Downing Street. And it's partly because of the, um, the lack of policy, but it's also there was something about his authority which was somehow lacking. People did not see him as a Prime Minister. Rightly or wrongly, they just didn't. And that's a, a, a very significant barrier it's hard to overcome. You can't really talk your way over it. And if you could have done, Kinnock is the one man in our lifetime of British politics who would have been able to do so, but he wasn't able to. And why, why not? Because we put a lot of stall on uh, speeches, Aisha. And... The Okinawa was clearly a great speech. I mean, you need all of the elements. You need great policy, you need a great team, you need a lot of luck, you need timing to be on your side. But actually being able to communicate to the public is, is, is really important. It is. And look, you know, the, the speech, I think, as well, has changed a lot because I think back in the day as well, the sort of Neil Kinnock era, it was, a, it, it was very much about a big moment in the room mm. and that big performance in the room with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of activists there. It was like a real kind of an electrifying moment it felt like as an activist you had to be in the room and also remember this is pre-social media this is pre and i think in a way i think when you look back on some of those um speeches where the oratory was amazing it was real they still were very much speaking to people in the hall i think as time has gone on particularly under tony blair he and his team really realized 
the room is only part of the yeah. story. You're trying to really get into the television screens of in their living room. Yeah. Now you're trying to really get into the palm of people's hands with the, the social media clip. Very, let's be honest, right? Very few people, no matter how good or bad Keir Starmer's speeches say, very few people will sit down. It's probably going to be an hour, right? These things normally are. Very few people will strap themselves in and say, right, I'm going to dedicate an hour to this. So I think the the kind of the sort of the nature of the the performance and what that has to do for you has changed a lot as well. It does strike me, Phil, considering he was only ever leader of the opposition, there's an awful lot of sort of Neil Kinnock's speech moments, probably far more than any other leader of the opposition, because he, you know, whether it's a Labour council sending taxis yeah. scuttling around Liverpool where we are right now, um, you know, I, why was I the first Kinnock to go to In university? A you know, and, Joe and Biden famously it was still. Joe Biden yeah. famously still. Amazing moments. Because he had an issue. Kinnock had a really important issue, which was the health and survival of the Labour Party. And he spoke about it brilliantly, and he was the perfect person to do it, because he came from the Labour left, he was deeply rooted in the Labour Party, and he was thought of as an, an apostate by those on the left, because he understood that Labour needed to move in order to be a party of government. Now, he couldn't go all the way, but that issue was incredibly emotionally engaged in the Labour Party, exactly as Aisha says, in the hall, it was electric. Um, and he was doing the first phase that you always have to do when you've gone into opposition, which is to recover. And Kinnock was doing that, and it was very difficult because, in part around this part of the world, there was a lot of um, activism within the Labour Party that was, in Kinnock's view, not helpful to get into government. Yeah. So that issue gave him something to talk about. It's quite common that you get to conference, you haven't really got anything to say. Kinnock always had something to say. I also think as well, Neil Kinnock is quite was quite unusual in the sense that he was such a gifted orator like as you say that beautiful beautiful voice he kind of loved the art of, of yeah. oratory and and performing I mean if anything you know it's quite hard to get Neil to, to stop <laughs> Neil did so when I got my MB at the party afterwards Neil did the speech it was me and this other guy Greg we both got on and Neil came and did the speech and at one point Glennis was literally like dragging him off <laughs> wrestling the microphone no, off John, John Major said a brilliant thing about Kinnock which is cruel but brilliant he said that Kinnock, the reason Kinnock talks so much is that he doesn't know what he's trying to say so he doesn't know when he's finished <laughs> <laughs> but he is this like he just he loves performing right yeah. he absolutely and he's very wonderful at it as well and actually I've you know, remember a bit about unfair saying well it didn't work did it because he didn't become Prime Minister but it's a bit like you know William Hague was very good at doing PMQs he didn't become Prime Minister but it might have been worse if he hadn't yeah. you know yes. that actually some of those skills might have you know without them they could have been even worse exactly we can't expect it to take you all the way it's, yeah. only, it's only a speech and as Aisha says not everybody's watching there's a lot of work that needs to there's be done there's a lot more things but besides. in the same way with like Kinnock and Hague's a really good example of that for PMQs it might not have moved the, the needle that much of the electorate but I think it gave actors and it gave the party some self-respect back and I think never underestimate the art of political communication like it doesn't get you all the way but the kind of feel-good factor and it just makes you feel good about the yeah, party yeah. Again. The it could be there's a very good book on um, parliamentary questions I, I gather isn't there <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I read Judy <laughs> <laughs> politics available at all bookshops there's a very good book on speech writing well, well thank you Matt I think we've done our work here yeah, now good, uh, there's a very <laughs> good book about to come out there's a very good book coming out this week as well about uh, the 50 places that change Bridge of politics, but we don't want to talk about that now. Uh, let's turn our attention to the only Labour leader in a very long time who has gone from opposition into government. Let's go back to 1996, Tony Blair's pre-election conference speech, uh, which, you know, is probably best remembered for focusing on one policy in particular. Ask me my three main priorities for government, and I tell you, education, education, 
and education. And I tell you my vision of the future. I would like a state education system in Britain. So good, so attractive, that the parents choose to put behind us the educational apartheid of the past, private and state. And I don't believe anything would do more to break down the class divides that have no place in a modern country in the 21st century. Education, education, education. The, the original three-word slogan, Phil. Yeah, not one of mine. Jonathan Powell, I think, claims credit for that one. Um, it's interesting listening to that again now. Um, the texture of Blair's voice is really, I've always thought, very strange. Um, high, very unlike anybody else in the Labour Party. He's not a Labour Party uh, rhetorician at all. That's definitely part of his appeal. Um, but then the message incredible clarity you know you get there and he, he actually asks the question that others are asking of him if, if you ask me what are my three priorities I mean Keir Starmer could do worse than to, to do something similar and then a, an interesting um, response because it's, just, it's one word repeated it then struck me that actually that didn't turn out to be the three yeah, top yeah, priorities yeah, yeah. of the government did it really in the end so again it shows you the limits of this it, it creates a moment it definitely does give the party a spring in its step it's definitely part of creating your credibility as a political leader but it's not really all that much of a promissory note for the future because events intervene and other things will happen so it's it's something which is rooted in the moment and it's it is important in defining who you are but it's not really quite the thing that d defines you in the end because the world intrudes but it also I suppose a reminder Aisha if you want to land a message I mean the whole point of saying well, his priority was education was it wasn't labour infighting it wasn't putting up taxes it was the, you know bread and butter schools and your kids and the future and all that's bad up in education in a way that if if Rishi Sunak last week you know what are my three priorities Cancelling HS2, something to do with exams, and, and some children and not smoking. smoking. Yeah. And that doesn't, I mean, they're all, you know, you can argue about the merits of them all individually, but it's a bit like, it's almost like a weird shopping list. It's, you know, when you find yourself at the checkout and you've got like, you know, washing up liquid sellotape and a bunch of flowers, like, you know, you might need them all, but it doesn't tell me anything about what you're, you're planning to do. And so much of this is about telling a, a, a story. Um, I love that kind of run. It's like the Aldi sick middle. I've yeah, got yeah, a canoe yeah. and a sort of fishing rod. I was like, just trying to work out what you could do with washing up <laughs> sellotape and a bunch of flowers. Yeah. That's a game show. Yeah. Matt, that's another challenge for you right yeah. there. But no, you're right. So much of this is is about, about telling a story. And I think... Um, I think what's so interesting is that like the one fight that the Labour Party has really lent into is just I've just scribbled down listening to that education, education, education. The fact that Labour is picking this fight over um, VAT and, uh, and private schools. I think you need kind of Labour can't commit to too much at this stage. Yeah. And from what I've been told, I'm sure that there's going to not be a big policy rabbit from from the hat. But what they need is they need a couple of things like education, which gets the blood pumping yeah. for people. They need one or a couple of things that people understand. It's it's emotional. It kind of quickens the, the pulse. And it's it, a bit of a row. And so that's, that really reminded me yeah. of hearing it that. Also, it also provides you with a thread for the speech. So when, when you're writing these speeches, the big problem you've got is because you're trying to encompass subjects that you don't normally have to go into. You've got to find a single idea which somehow allows you to talk about education, foreign policy, the army, 
um, net zero housing and, and of course these things are rather like washing up liquid and sellotape they're not really in fact all that connected but you've got to find an idea that makes them seem logical yeah. and that's the big challenge for a writer of doing this speech and in there in that speech that we just heard the, the pre-97 um, speech he, he did that because education and modernization yeah. was the theme yeah. The country has, has fallen behind and needs to be modernized again. And yeah. that was the theme that Blair had. It's also the theme that Wilson had and the theme that Attlee had. And, and Starmer himself has used it. Uh, and also just speaking to Peter Manson over the weekend, he made the point, you know, there's this big debate about kind of caution versus, you know, how, how bold he can be. He actually said, look, in the run-up to 1997, if you actually really look back at the pledge card stuff, a lot of that's quite lean in actual mm. sort of detail and policy. But what they did was they crafted this narrative that did feel optimistic, fresh, exciting, that change was coming. And so much of the art of politics and communication is about storytelling about yeah, rather yeah, yeah. than here are like the raw numbers about this. I was struck yesterday when um, Rachel Reese kept repeating, Labour is ready to serve, ready to lead, ready to rebuild Britain. She kept doing it. Every time she did, it got a bigger round of applause. There we go. Well, let's now remind ourselves of a pre-election uh, speech by a Labour leader. Uh, this was uh, Gordon Brown uh, in 2009, setting out his stall. Obviously, he was already Prime Minister, but about to fight his first election, trying to be defiant in the face of the global economic crisis that was really hitting Labour in the polls. Our country faces the biggest choice for a generation. So we need to fight, not bow out, not walk away, not give in, not give up, but fight, fight to win for Britain. I mean, he, he was a good speech maker. He was. He was. He was an old-fashioned speech yeah. maker, really. But uh, he was good. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I love that uh, formulation. It's, the, it's the, big fight, the biggest election for a generation. I long for someone to say, this one doesn't matter so yeah. much. <laughs> we can sit this one out. It doesn't matter, really. He was a good speaker, but he was quite a, an indigestible speaker. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't light. Um, his voice is, is gravelly and, and strong and it works in some circumstances and not in others it doesn't work brilliantly on TV he works much better in the hall it works when he's got a big subject so for example when he spoke on the financial crash his incredible credentials and authority and intelligence then came through and he was immensely impressive in those moments not so much a modern campaigner um, but also I think it again it shows that you can't talk your way out of a problem I mean any government which has been in place when the financial system collapses yeah. is going to struggle and I don't think there's much you can say beyond it's troubled times please don't take a risk I mean that's all you can do at that point and that's what he did yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Gordon Brown, I think, is an amazing communicator, but w his style is very son of the man's, yeah. right? You know, he is... Uh, Gordon Brown is at his best in, like, a massive old kind of church sort of building with, like, 600... Which he did during the... I think during the 2010 election, but also during the Scottish referendum. Yes, during the referendum. He, he was a citizens' um, convention yes, thing, absolutely. wasn't it? Magnificent you, 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 top even a mag Almost like a sort of cathedral with, like, about sort of 600 people there, and he is absolutely kind of brilliant at that sort of you know Phil will know this very well from Labour politics there's a particular type of speaker that does kind of all-time religion for a, a Labour audience and it is absolutely captivating and it's like kind of political poetry 
but you're so right. You put them in a different setting. I remember being in the run-up to the 2010 general election campaign and things were going really bad. We just lost a by-election in Glasgow. It was kind of like curtains. It was just really, yeah. really bad. And we went to the National Policy Forum and it must have been about 45 degrees. It was absolutely baking. We were in a room with so much static electricity <laughs> and heat every day. And Gordon was meant to do sort of like a quick 10 and like 45 minutes later, the entire room. And we're in this really modern building in this time. Every, and it's just meant to be a quick G up the troops, yeah. right? We've got a lot of work to do. So he worked and it's every, like, and it's yeah, sort yeah. of son of the manse giving like a big sermon. Yeah, he thing. loved that and he was very good at it. I mean, Blair was much less good at that and didn't enjoy doing it. I mean, Blair, as Roy Jenkins brilliantly said, climbed up the building from the outside. Blair didn't like particularly the rallying cry, which is part of the conference yeah. rhetoric and, and he wasn't that good at it. And um, whereas Brown was fantastic at it. He, he, he but then enjoyed it goes back doing to that it. thing about who is the audience. So Blair was better at speaking out to the country Brown was better at geeing up the troops inside. Well, that's a good combination. Well, it's why they were a good combination, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you're going to love this next bit, Aisha. Oh, we are wait. going back to 2014, the last Labour conference before the 2015 general election. Uh, the only thing in politics that anyone was talking about was the deficit and the need to bring it down and the accusation that the Conservatives had a long-term economic plan and Labour was uninterested in the deficit. So Ed Miliband decided to do his speech uh, without notes he wanted to talk a lot about togetherness uh, but then f forgot to mention the deficit let's take a listen together 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 we can restore faith in the future together we can build a better future for the working people of Britain together we can rebuild Britain friends together we can Uh, together, uh, all together, apart from uh, remembering uh, all together the bit on the deficit. Here he is, Ed Miliband, the day after his big speech, when he had to do a sort of, whatever the opposite of a victory t lap is, as he went on every news outlet to explain why he forgot the deficit. Here he is on the BBC. With the deficit paragraph, sure. because it's printed, isn't sure, sure. it? Did you forget that paragraph? Yeah, I didn't do one part of the speech, and I added in other bits. <laughs> Aisha. I'm literally triggered. I'm actually having a stroke. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? I'd like to put a complete into HR, please, kind of thing. Um, look, it was just a really, really awful moment because... So there have been a couple of kind of weird speeches, just to give you the context, back in Liverpool. So the, the, the first speech when Ed won was really quite difficult because as soon as he won against David, very, very controversial, red air. Beating his brother, but, David So Moran, that was like yeah. the first year. It was really, really difficult. Um, and then he wanted to make a sort of big policy speech uh, later and did the speech called Predators versus Oh, that Producers. was in Liverpool, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, yeah, it, I yeah. remember very well. And look, the kind of premise was a good one. It was about, you know, good capitalism versus bad capitalism. It's a debate that lots of people are having. But that's quite a big idea to cheery. land in, yeah. a, in a sort of conference speech. The next speech he did, a One Nation speech, which actually went down very, very well. And, you know, he was much more trying to speak to the country at that point, which is the right thing. Um, to do and I think because that one had gone on quite well and his trick was he's very good memory and you know I want to walk around sort of and, and not be kind of you know fettered and hemmed in by the, the lectern so decided to sort of memorize it we had rehearsed it so many times we were going to use various theatres across London and we're having to negotiate with the theatre let us in late at night to practice I mean, it was a lot yeah. of kind of prep going on and he, we, we rehearsed that speech so many times and he had always got it word perfect until 
the big moment and we were all kind of stood there and we because we all practically remembered it word for word as well and we were like we were all all the advisors were kind of like reaching for each other's <laughs> hands and going oh my goodness what's happened I can't and it was just it was just the worst bit to leave at because as you say the political frame and the context which can't trust Labour on the economy that care about if the deficit if you'd forgotten any other bit yeah, totally. it wouldn't have been remembered if you'd forgotten the army if you'd forgotten the whole of it it would have been better <laughs> if you'd only said that bit <laughs> What's the point, Phil, of doing that trick of the the? Because David Cameron pulled it off in two thousand and seven, when he was basically trying to stop Gordon Brown calling a general election in Blackpool. I remember it well. The the what's it called the the the, the gardens. The, the what's the the, the, the winter, gardens. winter gardens. Winter gardens in Blackpool. And he took his watch off and he yep. put it down. And he said it might be messy, but it's me. But he did have some notes on his table. I think literally some bullet points to make sure he, he did. But what he was doing with that speech, Cameron, was saying I'm new, I'm different. Because if you read that speech again, and I have since, there's nothing in it. <laughs> but you have to watch it because it does, the style of delivery does say, I'm not like the wooden David Davis, yeah. who's my rival for this job. I'm a brand new type of conservative. And the method of my delivery is, is a sort of metaphor for that. So that's what it does. It says, I'm, I'm looser, I'm, I'm younger, I'm different. And so at a certain time in your development, there's, it's no, no bad thing. I mean, the, I understand why he wanted to do it. I think the speech that Ed had done the year before, the One Nation speech, had been excellent. Yeah. It was really well written and it was, it was interesting because they took a notion that's normally a conservative yeah. idea and he wrestled it from them. Yeah. And I thought that In was Manchester actually... In Manchester where the One Nation... Yeah. Where it was clever and it was um, and it was interesting so therefore I felt at the time this is not just all the wisdom of retrospect that he needed to develop and become bigger in stature as a politician and therefore standing behind a podium and, and just doing it conventionally was exactly what he should have mm. done I didn't really anticipate, of course, that he'd then forget part of it, but I felt it was a mistake for him to do that in any, in any case and, and at also, that point. I think the other thing about just to, for, for Ed's kind of rise through politics, so, you know, Ed and David were in, in politics at, at the same time. David sort of got kind of promoted a wee bit faster the, than Ed, but what Ed was famed for was doing things like the Fabian Society and all these like political conferences, and his thing was to speak without notes. But that's because he was at that stage, as Phil said, very much the, the younger brother, yeah, yeah, the kind yeah. of insurgent. The sort and nobody of, was scrutinising what he was saying. And people loved way. it. You know, he was a little bit, I mean, I use this term loosely, he was a bit of a rock star in terms of, you know, well, political <laughs> But, you know, but then, I, but, but what Phil is right, I think once you get to a certain level, you don't don't need the gimmicks and the tricks and, and the upside of doing without notes is massively outweighed by the potential yeah. downside of it going and wrong. And always stay at the lectern, as Penny Mordaunt found out very recently. Yeah. Don't go off and start screaming, stand up and fight. I, I Once think you start walking, because it's, it's really stop. bad. Exactly, it's really bad. Stop. Where's she going? <laughs> I, w I wish she hadn't stopped. He just walked straight <laughs> off. But you know, walked all the way home because there were no trains. Let's because we, we want to make sure we, in the interest of completeness. Um, let's wind our way back to 2019. Of course, it was in the middle of all the prorogation and lots of people actually left, I think, uh, before Jeremy Corbyn's speech. There was all that, you know, the, 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 the prorogation was all done. Oh, awful. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was Jeremy Corbyn's speech in 2019, ahead of what then obviously became the December uh, general election. This is him expressing optimism ahead of uh, what actually turned out to be the worst defeat for, um, well, 80-odd years. Uh, let's, let's listen to Jeremy Corbyn 2019. The tide is turning. The years of retreat and defeat are coming to an end. Together, we can take on the privilege and put people into power. Conference, the Labour Party and our movement, thank you for all you do. Thank you for the campaigning you do. Go forward.
to win an election for the people of this country. Never quite knows whether or not his sentence has come to an end. No, exactly. <laughs> It looks like he's reaching for it, isn't it? Now, yeah. home, yeah, tomorrow to campaign. Yeah. It's the election, which is coming. Defeat. It, I mean, that's if that's the rousing end. <laughs> you wonder what has gone before. <laughs> it was sort of. It was more a stutter than an end, wasn't it? We also get special permission to play that clip in the uh, in the party conference centre, so that people could take themselves elsewhere if need I be. I think the other thing that you get from that little clip of Corbyn, and it's the one thing he shared with Ed Miliband, is that they're quite pious in their tone. Mm. And the Labour Party's got to be careful about that because the Labour yeah. Party can sound pious and earnest. And both Ed and Jeremy, in their way, sounded quite pious there. And it's not a really nice look. You know, you're essentially telling people what to do. No, you can be better. There's a sort of patronising part to it. To be it. fair, Phil, that is a symptom of left communicate. Like, there's many uh, Labour yeah. politicians. I, I mean, agree, not that's my point. I think yeah. I would say, having done comms, I think that's one of the weaknesses of the left, the sort of supply teacher, you know, I'm not angry, I'm just a bit disappointed, <laughs> yes. kind of thing like that. But the other I thing do. about Jeremy Corbyn, and I do think it's a little bit unfair to, to, to lump Ed with him, but <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> was... Um, so well, no, just you know, what can I say? Like, all have it. I'm loyal, I'm loyal me I'm loyal but what I will say is for somebody you know for, for this person that's meant to be a firebrand from the left the left have often produced some amazing orators yeah. and he was such a bad public speaker look someone like Michael yeah. Foote you might think well, amazing, amazing Even John public John McDonnell on a good day good. I've, I've seen him good, do yeah. good speeches obviously here. going back Be Bevan was yeah, the yeah. great speaker or the, the, the firebrand union leaders of, of the left many of them who's got you know because Scargill was yeah. a great speaker yeah. was you know if you came from the union movement that was all about basically persuading people to give up their wages yeah. for a greater cause going out on strike. And often sort of gathering people in a car park and yeah. making an incredible speech. Yeah. That was, the, I think, you know, and when you speak to people around who supported Corbyn at the time, they are so, they were like, we, if we had, they still sort of some of them leave, if, we, if they picked somebody who had much more charisma and did have those kind of oratory skills, they believed they might have done a bit better. Somebody who wouldn't read out the notes, strong message here <laughs> when delivering a speech. <laughs> Exactly. It's one of the great moments in all speech. I'm often tempted when I'm writing things to put things like that in, yeah. just in the hope I could repeat that. Yeah. I'll never have a moment like that. <laughs> well, um, we, we, we wait to see if Keir Starmer takes more uh, lessons from Tony Blair than from all the others. Uh, and then also we wait to see if it makes a, a, the blindest bit of difference in the general election. So it's been lovely to see you both. Uh, Phil Collins, Aisha Zawika, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.